This is The Lit Fantastic, a radio show about authors and their obsessions. I'm your host, Neil Aiken. Today we talk to Saba Razvi, the author of In the Crocodile Gardens, Heliophobia, Limerence and Lux of the Divining and the Dead, and Beside the Muezzin's Call, and Beyond the Harem's Veil. She is currently an assistant professor of English and creative writing at the University of Houston in Victoria, Texas, where, in addition to working on scholarly research on interfaces between science and contemporary poetry, she is also researching Sufi poetry and translation and writing new poems and fiction. She is a phenomenally busy person, and we are so grateful to have her on the show today. In this episode, we unravel one of her more recent obsessions, mummies. But before we get there, I check in with Sabo about her old obsessions with robots, sci-fi, and automatons. We're going to begin with our usual question. Uh, mm-hmm. What is your strangest or most unusual or most unexpected obsession? Oh, well, right now that would have to be mummies, like of the ancient kind, specifically the Egyptian kind. I am really, really fascinated with um, uh, how burials were conducted and what we know about the texts that we find in ancient Egypt uh, and through Assyriology studies. And I've been fascinated with the, the recent discoveries that have emerged so these days I've been going to like the Oriental Institute Museum and various other archives to read about and look at different things. And, you know, it might not be surprising that I like the gloomy and the spooky, but I never thought that I, I'd be so into mummies. And that's what it is these days. OK, so this is an interesting transition, right? Because you started mm-hmm. off um, having this fascination with with robots and automaton and sci-fi yeah. um, related so do you see a connection then between the automaton and the mummy? Well, I think I do. And, and you know, my fascination with, with robots and automata has definitely not abated. I am still really, really obsessed um, with those ideas and, and uh, those concepts. And I've been working on, on projects that relate to them. But as I've been working on projects and doing various kinds of research, I, I've noticed that thinking about how we look at the world and how we examine the world and program the things that we want the objects we make to do and, and the ways we want them to function says a whole lot about the interior of an object that we often associate with something that that is so focused on spectacle you know i mean most of us encounter uh robots or automata through things like science fiction like movies or uh or books and there's a strong sense of imagining what that looks like whether it's you know humanoid android or or not at all and so the shell or the outside of that space is interesting to me because, you know, in, in reading more and more about artificial intelligence, it's not really about what the thing looks like, but how program, how ideas are programmed and connected and processed. And so, you know, this idea of what's on the outside versus what's on the inside and how you prepare for the way the outside gets used uh, led me to, to thinking about mummies, actually, what's done with their bodies, how the embalming process is conducted, how the, the sarcophagi are preserved, how the coffins are preserved, and the kinds of texts that are written on the outside that are a sort of programming or processing for people who do know or don't know, and for this, this being or this life uh, 
to move on in a space that has nothing to do with that particular form. So I guess I do see uh, a really weird kind of connection between the two. I mean, neither, neither one is alive, but neither one is dead either. I mean, they're not decayed and gone completely. They're kind of in this interesting liminal space of not living or unliving. To be quite honest, I had never thought of that, um, mm -hmm. of the mummy in that particular way. It, it's mm -hmm. interesting to think about the the funerary script or the ritual script around the mummification process and the sarcophagi as a type of script, uh, a programming script that, that yeah. executes and calls something into an existence. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it is really interesting. I, I, I do find it also, and maybe this is a little bit of a tangent, but mm -hmm. it also evoked this idea that the audiences of the mm. mummy and the automaton are, I, I don't know if they're exactly the same. I feel like with an automaton, yeah. you, you point out this idea that it's a spectacle, that it's meant to be mm -hmm. observed. But what would that, what does that say about the mummy then? Who, who well, is the I mean, audience? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, so so the the link, I guess, between something ancient and organic like mummified remains and something completely synthesized like a futuristic android, like maybe Honda's Asimo or something. The link between those was actually for me, the idea of the golem and the idea of the being in which you put sacred words and make things happen. And I think, you know, there's this interesting space in speculative literature that makes room for so many different things. I mean, there's there's uh, science fiction, there's the futuristic stuff that we look at, cyberpunk and biopunk, but there's also space for the supernatural and the paranormal and the notion of magic and the occult and the esoteric. I do think, you know, they are different audiences. You have a sort of need to uncover and unwrap and understand and decode texts on both sides, but I think that's necessary um, in many kinds of, of looking at language. There has been a sort of space in speculative lit for this kind of futurism, this kind of biopunk sort of aesthetic that asks us to think about the body and what it's made of too, or the form. And I, I see that kind of overlapping there, you know, people decoding things, taking things apart. And even though Museums and museums are the space of like very codified knowledge, and and we see little bits and pieces of that brought to the surface through through cards and through tours. Um, but there's a lot behind the scenes that people don't really understand, and I think that is also the case with the inner workings of mechanical objects, automata, programs, and things of that nature. So, you know, they're like two sides of a coin in my mind. Like I just, you know, it's like life and not life which is different from death and not death, which is different from knowing and not knowing and unknowing. And so it brings up these like interesting parallels. And so I, I see them as the same, even though they might not look the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think something that you, you brought up earlier, this idea of, you know, the, the body, the, the mummified body is taking on sort of a liminal state of being between life and death, or maybe yeah. between death, death and the next life, the the mm -hmm. entry into the next world. You know, because in some respects, the the audience perhaps. Well, it seems like the mummy has multiple audiences, right? There is the mm -hmm. there is mm -hmm. the intended audience, 
of of whoever awaits in the afterlife, you know. Mm-hmm. And then there is the the audience that we encounter as sort of this this modern contemporary yeah. culture of discovering these artifacts. And mm-hmm. they become these, I, I think what you're getting at is something of a window into the past. Whereas the automaton, the automaton or the the robot is kind of a an imagination of what our future might be like. Well, at yeah. the same time, a a wrestling with the idea of what is it to be intrinsically human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or to be a person, be- I guess. And to be mortal, right? Because really, I mean, mummies in in this sort of space, I mean, they're concerned with the idea of immortality, like an immortality that we may or may not see as um, life the way we live life, like biological life. But there's a sense of immortality that's built into the idea of that process. And I think that the same goes for the notion of the automata or the robot. And, you know, with, with mummies, you have all these different things like these uh, they have these little uh, ushabtis or, uh, I guess, carved figures that are supposed to do the bidding of the person, like in the afterlife and things like that. So it, it reminds me very much of so- someone that you could program to just do what you want. There's something very robotic, very fixed about that kind of interaction. And I think though they are different audiences for different things, I do see the idea of a projected future and an imagined past that is tied to that projected future as sort of entwined in both, both of those um, beings, I guess, in a way that like maybe other monsters that we look at in, in science fiction or horror or speculative literature are not the same. Like, I, I don't think that ghosts occupy the same exact space and, you know, the notion of the werewolf, they don't occupy the same space. I don't know. I think witches are another another concept there that, that overlaps with with this notion of knowledge too. But I think that both both mummies and um, the idea of of robots and robotic figures have a space that's rooted in um, academic study, and so it's seen as kind of legitimized as being part of institutionalized knowledge, but which also exists in a space of very popular culture, um, which which can celebrate and enjoy it without. Um, a desire to focus on that kind of research. I mean, of course, that's different from the idea of, you know, who created mummies and why they created them and then uh, who chooses to work on robotics and what they do with those robotics. But the idea, I think, of understanding and what we do with those and the, the, the levels of research, I think, span in a really interesting sort of a space. So I, I guess one thing that that's come up you know, as I'm listening to this and, and thinking mm-hmm. about what you're addressing, which is that these, the mummy and the and the robot or the artificially intelligent piece of code, you know, that the program, yeah. occupy this. You, you, as you point out, occupy the space between the the academic or the scholarly and something that's that's almost supernatural or paranormal. Mm-hmm. Where do you see this intersecting with, um, let's say, Frankenstein, the, the story of Frankenstein, Frankenstein's creature? Right, right. I mean, like, that's such a such a fascinating book, you know, and I, I love it. I love to teach it. I love to read it. I, I revisit it every so often. And there's something so exciting about the ways in which we see uh, the advances in science and experimentation and knowledge sort of utilized in order to engage notions of life and life processes that are 
uh, here for us. And of course, you know, I've always been interested in the notion of the monstrous and what is the monstrous and what is the other and what is like us and not like us. And I think that same question works for my interests in artificial intelligence and in, in uh, robotics and also in these other aspects of of the supernatural that I'm, that I find really fascinating. So I, I think that, you know, there is something about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein that, you know, it changes over time. Like I've read this book in many different spaces of time in my life and, and, and during many contexts and through many circumstances. And I always find something kind of different. And recently I was thinking about the experiences of Mary Shelley and the stuff that she had gone through and what she was grieving and what she was working with and uh, the notion of motherhood, the notion of miscarriage, the notion of loss and all the things that are built up in in Frankenstein that I, I never like picked up on the first time I read the novel or maybe even the second. And I think, you know, there's this sort of layered conversation there that involves not just how do we experience the monstrous or the human, the self or the other, but also how do we deal with the notion of technology and technological innovation and scientific innovation that we see as something that's totally going to save us. But somehow, you know, though it may excite us and though it may give us many opportunities to live better, healthier, more meaningful and more fascinating lives, it's never going to spare us grief. And it's never going to spare us our our mortality, really, at least not in, in, in the, the book itself or the way we encounter it in the book itself. You know, there's a sense that maybe consciousness um, transcends the body, that, that it could live beyond the body or outside the body. But, you know, and we see that again also in, in, in sci-fi that features uh, consciousness being uploaded into other places. But I do think that there's this, this interesting conversation there about how technology can save us, but it is destined to fail us in certain kinds of ways because of the fact that we are like living, breathing bodies made up of biology. You know? So, so at the core, then, you know, is this sense, this this awareness of one's mortality, the mortality of the human body, and the the grief that can't be quite reconciled. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think. You know, I think that's there. Like the monster, the the monster in the novel is so so innocent and so childlike in so many ways. And I think that we feel like this huge sense of pity and compassion for the creature, in addition to kind of a revulsion. And I think there's something there's something about that. The idea that that we are totally individual beings, and that we're capable of maybe creating things or processes that we can never fully control and that we know that we're responsible for. And what do we do with that knowing that we are not ourselves permanent fixtures Mm. in the universe, right? Where does our responsibility eventually end? How much foresight are we expected to have? Uh, How do we reconcile that with our own uh, fallibility and and which is, or our own mistakes, which are so necessary for progress, right? I mean, like we can't have progress without making these kinds of mistakes. And I, and I do think that Frankenstein is a novel that engages or questions the notion of what to do with what we can do. Mm-hmm. 
I, I mean, with with all these different threads, then with the thread of grief, the thread of technology, the thread of of our own limitations. Like, I, I find it fascinating too the way that that Frankenstein, as a novel, is actually constructed as not a single narrative, but as multiple, mm-hmm. as a mm-hmm. multi-threaded narrative. And I wonder if, in a way, could it even be read as some sort of a mummy? As oh. as a form, you know that's really cool. I don't think I've you know I've I've thought of it in that way. But now that you now that you say it, I, I just I want to read it again and think of it exactly like that. <laughs> it's kind of fascinating. But yeah, I mean there is this the sense of multiple layers that um, that need to be unwrapped in order for us to understand what is at the center. And then when we get to the center, it's really just a husk of a truth mm-hmm. that we can never fully inhabit, but that we are perpetually longing to inhabit i mean i think there is that feeling that comes from the way in which frankenstein is is written as well and then i think the the full title you know frankenstein or the modern prometheus is such an interesting way of thinking about it too right you know if we think about prometheus and his suffering for the sake of technology i mean we you know, we don't think of technology as fire necessarily, right? And and to harken back to a sense that technology is anything that can can move things forward, that it can be rooted in the natural world, that it can be rooted in the mind, that there, there's something beyond it, even though it begins with something else. I think that's really meaningful. You know, the idea that we can try as hard as we like to transcend our situations and experiences but you simply just leaving these these echoes right these echoes that are kind of empty but I, I like the idea of reading frankenstein as this this sort of uh mummified text this thing that like uh, it's an empty container but it's also a container that's like wrapped in different layers and preserved for different people in different ways that I think we have to decode. Another thing I think about Mary Shelley's novel is that, you know, knowing things about her life and her biography helps us to understand Frankenstein in in ways that are different from just examining it without knowing anything about her life. And then, you know, I think this is kind of fascinating, too, because the novel exists in this matrix of conversation about a Frankenstein that is a monster, like a Hollywood monster, that is completely different. I mean, you can go out on any Halloween and find people dressed up as, uh, you know, as Frankenstein's monster or as the creature. And, you know, you ask them who they are and they're going to say, well, I'm Frankenstein, you know. Or, like, I don't know if you've seen, I doubt you've seen this this cartoon. It's a children's cartoon. I watch it sometimes with my niece. It's called Monster High. Have you have you seen Monster High before? I, I haven't watched any complete episodes. I, I, I'm cool. aware that it exists, though, yes. So it's an interesting kind of conversation because you're looking at these these movie monsters or these literary monsters and what they've turned into and what their offspring have turned into. There's like, there's a character on the show whose name is Frankie Stein, the offspring of uh, Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein, which are, which, as we know, are like, very different from what you find in Mary Mary Shelley's novel itself. But, you know, I think the novel exists in this matrix of her past, her life, her experiences, her world, um, her literary and very mediated world, and, and how it came to be. Like, that's that's one aspect of it. And then there's the novel and the experience of reading the novel, the popularity of the novel over so much time. And then the fact that it exists within this conversation 
that has so much to do with a, a Frankenstein that is disconnected from her novel entirely. Yeah, I, I remember studying this, uh, writing about this as part of my dissertation as well. Yeah. And, and thinking about how quickly the monster changed form. And mm-hmm. it wasn't it wasn't that many years after the initial publication that a stage production of the novel was performed. And in the oh. stage production, the creature is awkward moves awkwardly and is mostly silent. Um, yeah. and it lacks any of the eloquence and and mm-hmm. vocabulary that's present in the novel. They they right. almost instantly reduced the creature to an automaton Um, yes yes and and so um and so i I found that fascinating i found it fascinating too the accounts of mary shelley's response to that that portrayal Mm -hmm. and how she was actually okay with that and really (laughs) i was surprised i thought what's happening here but i think in some (laughs) respects she's recognizing that it, the story has become something else in the popular imagination. Of yeah. But it, it, you know, we we sometimes think of that that portrayal of of the creature as as being a 20th century innovation, mm-hmm. when in mm-hmm. fact it actually goes all the way back to the beginning. Um, that is so interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't think I knew that about Mary Shelley's response to um, to that that depiction and to that particular change, and I'm. I'm fascinated by that. Now I need to know more about it. So, so, so with all the study, then, and I, I want to bring it back to to mummies, and, and thinking about you know the the mummy on its own. Going back to this idea of the mummy, what accompanies a, a mummy when it's buried? You know, I think there there are so like it really depends on on which culture you're talking about, which location you're talking about, uh, how the, the mummified remains have been uncovered. And I'm, you know, I'm by no means an expert on this, you know, but I've been really fascinated by how different the conditions for so many of these, these mummies are. I mean, we, we just think of the mummy as just the mummy, but you know, every single one is completely different. Every single one is like a person with like a past and a life and a context that has to be decoded through examining the the things that are buried with uh, that that particular person. It really is different in in different cultures and where where you find them and what's around them and what artifacts are are located with them and near them have have something to do with what you can understand about the cultures in which they lived and and experienced things and. You know, there's there's like the bog bodies, which don't have as many things, you know, deliberately ceremonially placed alongside them, but can be uncovered by maybe uh, cutting them open, like the sort of seeds that might be in their digestive tract or uh, information that can be gained from material that might be on the bodies themselves. It's a kind of artifact that's with them that maybe wasn't deliberately put there. Um, and I think that's kind of interesting, too. You know, there's some some strange things about what we can find in terms of people are placed, how people are laid out, how they're arranged, what kind of objects. And I think there, there are different objects with, with all the kinds that you find. I mean, there are mummies in so many different cultures, you know. Uh, there are some that you can find in China. You can find some in, in, in Africa. You can find some in South Africa in particular. You can find them in Mexico, you can find them in so many different places. And 
and all of them have very different stories. Yeah, I I guess that that's like really true. There, there's such a wide breadth of of ways in which bodies can be mummified, in which um, mm-hmm. different cultures choose to preserve their dead. And I, I think with that, I, I think what you're getting at too is in some ways, with each each mummified body, we're also presented with the question of context with with the scene yeah. in which they are found. In some ways, this, this feels like we're, we're talking about an episode of, of CSI or some, some detective mm-hmm. mystery. It's like, well, what, what were the circumstances in which they were found? What, what yeah. evidence was found around them? What evidence is presented within the body? And from that, we construct a story. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I guess that's perhaps like a, another direction we can go with this. Is mm-hmm. is where where do you think this is taking you and your own writing? Is yeah. it is it channeling? Is this moving towards sort of a locus of subjects that you're going to tackle or you currently are tackling within your creative work, within mm-hmm. your critical work, or 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 is this is this arising or giving shape in, in some way to a, a methodology or approach or, or mm. sort of a way of looking at the world? That's a good question. I mean, and you know me, and you know that like my research into things always ends up in, in a project somewhere. And we've talked about these kinds of things uh, before in our in our other conversations. But um, yes, I I do see parts of this material, parts of these things that I'm studying, as showing up in in creative projects that I have going on. So like each of the projects that I've done and completed is fixated around some question or another that keeps me focused and it keeps me somewhere. And, you know, so I've got uh, Waking Galatea, which is my project, which involves robotics and, and which I've been you know, working on for so long. And I'm so close to being ready to sort of let be in the world. I just like on the threshold of that. But the idea or the notion of thresholds, I think, and the idea or the notion of life and unlife, I think came up as I was completing that particular project, you know, and I find myself interested in things like the power of the word, like the power of the artifact, what these things mean in culture and in life, how they come to take meaning, how they take on symbolism and importance in people. And then I've also been really interested in notions of divination. I think people are, people are very interested in wanting to influence the outcome of their lives and and often seek knowledge and seek knowledge in in ways that are mediated. I don't know if you know anything about Baba Vanga. Do you know anything about Baba Vanga? I don't think I do. Oh, okay. So she's this really interesting person who um, came up with a lot of ideas that were seen as maybe prophecies. So she's a little bit like Nostradamus or the figure of Nostradamus, but she was a, a woman, I believe she was Bulgarian. She had gotten lost in a particular place and been in a, a disastrous situation when she was, when she was little. And at, at a point she became completely blind and she couldn't see at all, but was very interested in healing and mysticism and, and Christianity. And so she focused on religion and the sense of the other world and the sense of healing and sort of became this, the seer 
this kind of old school seer and she came up with all these different prophecies like people would would come and talk to her uh, and she would be very sure about what happened to these people and she would often have answers to questions about where people were what was happening to them so on and so forth and you know a lot of folks are interested in her prophecies or her projections about what would happen in the world because uh, so many of them seem like they have come true in one way or another you know of course i think this the, the same can be claimed about Nostradamus and a lot of that has to do with how we choose to read the words that she gave us you know there's always that too many things are kind of interpreted by uh by what we want to see but she had some beautiful and interesting poetic language through which she gave these prophecies and so figures like that I think are, are very interesting like she she sees herself or she saw herself as a healer and as a person who gave this information to other people in the interest of actually healing. And she sort of lived uh, at a distance away from, from other people and uh, was sort of on her own. But but this sort of healer, this kind of person, and I think it's fascinating to me that people who people who are looking for knowledge look for knowledge in so many ways the sense of wanting to believe in what people are saying wanting a sense of divination i don't know i find that really fascinating you're listening to lit fantastic a show about authors and their obsessions we're talking to saba razvi a poet a fiction writer and a scholar about her most recent obsession with mummies One of the projects that I've been working on is, um, and I, I kind of have a title for it, but I don't want to say anything about that because it's it's really in its early stages right now. It's kind of re-envisioning the idea of tarot and uh, divination through images and what we're looking at, but it's through a lens that is not at all based in Europe or uh, European symbols or symbology. And so I've been interested, I think, in notions of Chaldean magic, um, ancient Arabic grimoires like Picatrix, which is aim of the sage or the goal of the wise. I think that's how it gets translated or uh, in which the fictional Necronomicon, right? Necronomicon, you know, how that one comes across. And um, so this, this idea that these images kind of tell us not just what we want in our future, but but something about our desires in life, uh, the kind of longing for connection and experience and relevance and meaning that we don't really get to express in our ordinary experiences or interactions uh, with other people. And so this project is kind of, I'm creating a series of images or descriptions of images because it's it's not like illustrated or and it's they're not actually cards or anything, but what would maybe a, a tarot deck look like if we were completely separating ourselves from Eurocentric images, if we were only looking at images that come from the ancient past, from other, uh, from ancient Assyria, if we're looking at Egypt, if we're looking at India, what would it look like if we were uh, examining a completely different sort of idea about how to be and what to know. Um, so I've been kind of thinking about those things and, and there's a series of images and then through those series of images, I want to create poems. And those poems are based on on the idea of how any of those images could be interpreted in, in a so-called prophecy. 
such as what we might find through people like uh, Nostradamus or uh, or Baba Vanga or many of the other you know clairvoyants and people who have uh, claimed to be able to offer insight into the future and into other things and other realms. I don't know what will happen with this project. You know, so it's really very much in its early stages, and I have titles or names for for a number of the different uh, cards or the the things that have been derived from cards. And, uh, you know, things like there's the scorpion or there's the sandstorm um, or, you know, or the snake even. I mean, all of these, the boat, like all these things take on very different ideas. So maybe not so much the fool, but maybe the scholar, right? Or maybe uh, not so much the hierophant, but maybe the the monk, you know? Um, So I guess some of these ideas have overlapped into my understanding of how we know things and what we're doing with the things that we know and what that reveals about what what our hopes and desires happen to be in a world that that is increasingly more and more unstable and frightening. Okay, so the the project involves sort of the the creating of of a whole set of images or cards that then riff off of or, or take, they draw on, I guess is a better way to say it. They mm-hmm. draw on mm-hmm. on a non-European <coughs> set of, of basic elemental, fundamental, almost archetypal ideas that are, that mm-hmm. feel separate mm-hmm. from, from what we, we generally recognize as, let's say, emerging out of tarot or out of other sort of Western tradition. Right, right. You know, I mean, like even even the Ouija board, if we think we think about that, you know, and we think about the idea of, oh, you know, move the planchet to yes or no or or spell out the letters. I mean, that's that works very well with our alphabet and the and our script and the way our language looks and works. You know, what would that look like if it was in, you know, in Urdu or in uh, mm-hmm. Arabic or in Farsi or, in, you know, in Hindi or in in languages that don't work in the same way or with the same logic, you know, I think our idea of how we inherit or intuit information from our senses or how we come to admit certain things about our circumstances is fixed to the technology that we're using for those purposes. I'm very curious about what it would look like if we created a different uh, structure of images to explore these thoughts that we uh, that we only sort of process on the surface sometimes, and and I don't know if this is a little bit like the notion of uh, what you find in speculative literature, like what you'll find in Afrofuturism, and what you'll find in and what is now being called Gulf futurism as well and like reimagining things like you know the the ottoman empire through the lens of steampunk for example or things like that that you're you're that we are seeing a lot more of in in novels and in stories um i don't you know like i always go to poetry my my projects always go to that although i am working on some fiction projects too i think the idea of looking for order and answering questions about how we make order for me, fundamentally ties into poetry and the creation of space for us to space, which is reserved for us to curate and and consider the thoughts that we may not necessarily want to bring up within other contexts or can't bring up within other contexts. So I guess those are some projects that I've been 
working on going forward, I mean, you know, there's finishing up Galatea, uh, finishing up Waking Galatea, and this idea of the artificial intelligence, and that leading to this question of what exactly is intelligence, and what exactly is knowledge, and what do we know, and how do we know it, and what does that have to do with um, with our sense of wanting to create order out of out of difficulty? I suppose it's it's not unusual that this has led me to. Uh, more towards horror, I think, in that perspective, and maybe literary horror, I suppose, or aspects of horror, maybe dark fantasy or dark speculative works, perhaps might be another way of thinking about it. You know, these labels are just so so difficult to deal with. But you know, I was reading an article the other day, and it was talking about how people who, and I don't know how true this is, because I haven't studied this, obviously, but, you know, that people who gravitate towards the works in these kinds of fields in speculative literature and science fiction, specifically in horror, or even true crime or mystery are often looking for a sense of order or a belief that there's a way to fix the stuff that seems super unfixable, at least in, you know, in, in art. <laughs> so I guess maybe that's where, where that's finding its way into my projects. You, you know, that it's really interesting. You bring up so many interesting ideas and, and points <laughs> here. Um, so I, I'm going to throw out a few of them that, that come to mind. Yeah. One one is that in some ways, when you talk about this leading to the space of poetry as a mm-hmm. way to address a lot of these issues, I couldn't help but also hear echoed in that this idea of writing patch code. You, 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 you write code yeah. to try to fix different parts of an ailing system. In this discussion, it seems like poetry and, and perhaps literature on, on a broader scale, especially speculative mm-hmm. literature, is, a, is an attempt to try to do that. Um, yeah. So that that's one one line that kind of struck me. the The other thing that kind of occurred to me is this idea that you know this this draw towards the mystery or the horror or or the ritual is mm-hmm. in many respects. Um, it, it goes back. It does trace its way all the way back to the idea of the automaton. You know, I attended a lecture. It was like a visiting person lecturing at USC, you mm-hmm. know, just presenting a paper. And they they were talking about 18th century automata in in European, I think it was mostly German courts. And, oh, okay. And sort of like presented in front of nobility and how the automaton was a model uh, representation of how the how a particular class or a particular society understood the world. And so you would see replicated in these elaborate automata that would represent all layers of the society, you know, their understanding of how their world worked. But then how, yeah. like, I, I thought about that, and I thought, I realized it's really true that, that automata in all their different forms are about a representation of how the maker thinks the world works or thinks a human works or a living being yes. works. And so in many respects, what we're seeing then with our, our contemporary obsession and fascination with mystery, with, uh, mm-hmm. with police procedurals, with, with yeah. these with horror movies, and, and even return to ritual and to divination is perhaps a desire to make sense of the world by coming up with a model that explains it, that does our, but almost invariably with, with the automaton, the moment you finish building it, you realize you did not understand the world after all. Yeah. It always reflects something back that we didn't realize we didn't know. Um, Sure. So you build the automaton 
you build the the human robot and you realize that it is not human that you are clearly different from it something you thought you understood how you worked but you were wrong and Mm -hmm. so I, i feel like you know the horror movie is kind of doing that same thing. You think you understand what's going on, but turns out mm-hmm. you don't. <laughs> right, right. And it's it's an unsettling sort of thing. I mean, you get to this place where, um, you know, and you know the story, The Birthday of the Infanta by Oscar Wilde? I, I don't know tale? this one, no. Oh, it's amazing. You should totally read it. It's beautiful and it's wonderful. Um, and I think it, it, it speaks to this moment in, in terms of that sort of, recognition of self and recognition of self as self or self in relation to other that we're kind of talking about here, which is this weird kind of conversation between, you know, the idea of the, of being human and the idea of the self and the idea of our humanity. And then maybe what that looks like in a larger context, um, uh, contexts that, you know, that matter when we think about, uh, the, the global scale, for sure, you know, and think about the, the kinds of atrocities that we see happening all over the world and how self-indulgent the notion of self actually is in the context of something like war and um, uh, and, and genocide and, and big picture bad things, big picture horror, big picture atrocity. And that's so different from what, what we often see depicted in these kinds of um, stories and, and films. But so... Um, the Birthday of the Infanta is uh, written by Oscar Wilde, and it's um, from the House of Pomegranates, I believe. And it's um, a sort of fairy tale, but it's kind of – it's in Spain, and it's just before, like, the Spanish Inquisition, like, just at the onset of the Spanish Inquisition, uh, which is an interesting thing. And, and there's some spoilers here, so I apologize if anyone hasn't read the story and, you know, doesn't doesn't want this part to be ruined. There's, like, a really very complicated part at the end, which is – totally heartbreaking completely heartbreaking and i won't give all of it away but there's a moment in which there's a character who's a dwarf he's one of the main characters in the story and he's he's called the dwarf um he's not really given a name he's just called the dwarf and and he's seen as this little monster he's little and he's misshapen and he's deformed and he's monstrous and he's totally cool with himself he's happy being who he is and just being in the world and there's this awful moment in which he encounters a mirror and he's never seen himself before. And so for the first time, he's seeing himself through like maybe the eyes of somebody else and kind of recognizes that he isn't what he thought he was or that he is what he never thought he was. So there's some sort of weird like dissonance that happens in that particular moment that is really, it's not possible for him to reconcile that. And I apologize, it's a big spoiler, but you know, he kind of, he sort of unravels at that moment. And that breaking point to me was really fascinating uh, and interesting. And it's really, you know, the, the story pivots on what happens next. So I won't, you know, tell, tell what that is, but there's this sense that, you know, like what we recognize of ourselves is, is not what we are and what we, when we recognize something about who or what we are, we are already at a point when we're beyond it. Like we can't see it until we're kind of like beyond it and, you know, dead to that part of ourselves and then uh, recreated or rebooted or started over in a new version of who, who or what we are. So I do see that. I see that sense of like that constant need to try to make order of the world, make sense of the world, reconcile the things of the world with the things of ourselves. I think that that's there. That, that actually feels oddly reminiscent of 
of the Frankenstein story. We go back yeah. and, and the yeah. creature has that moment too, that realization mm-hmm. that when he looks when he looks at his reflection, he realizes right. that he does not possess the the same sort of physical appearance yeah. as as those around him. But mm-hmm. he tries. He tries nonetheless to to kind of you know, in his mind, what it means to be human or what it means to be a person involves intellect and reason and compassion right. and right. and sort of a and knowledge of history. Feeling and sentiment and right. appreciation. And he things. pursues yeah. all these things and then in the end it's all stripped away. He realizes that oh. unless he's in a conversation with someone who cannot see him, yeah. it's all for naught. Because right. all they see is his outward appearance. Um, yeah. I mean, who we are is who we are in the darkness, I suppose, right? Right. And so there's this reboot, and then he reinvents himself again and again yeah. and again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, we, we have some time here at the, the end. Mm-hmm. We, would you like to read a, a few poems for us? Wrap up this? Sure. Let's see. There's, you know, so... Uh, heliophobia, my book Heliophobia, which I know you've seen in, in other versions before it came out. It, it came out like in December, December 2017, and it was you know just at the tail end of the year. And I've been kind of excited about presenting pieces from it and um, uh, and aspects of it. I think um, that that are pretty cool. It was I was excited to discover that it was on the preliminary ballot for the Stokler Award, so that was pretty cool. I didn't make it to the final ballot, but a lot of other cool books did. Um, and there's some poems in here that I think might speak to what we're talking about. So here's um there, there's a reference in here. I'll just say a little bit about who the reference is. There's Fernando Pessoa. If you don't know him, he was a a writer that had a lot of heteronyms and wrote with all these different things. And he was kind of like this, he was a person that was kind of like 50 people in one, you know, different selves, different writing identities, different worlds, different attitudes. And there's so much cool stuff to discover about who he was. He was constantly like reinventing who that was in the moment and for the purposes of his writing project. And he, he wrote the book of disquiet and a whole lot of other things that are just really worth reading. He's fascinating. And so the book of disquiet, and I was, reading that book and thinking about like all the number of selves he had inside of himself that he could envision as whole and full and complete beings with lives. And so this is called Cacophony of Bells, The Origin of Disquiet, and it's for Fernando Pessoa. Fernando, the self you see reflected in the liquor in your glass is not yourself. He follows you, though, commenting on the silences you resume. Can you blame him? If he emerges sometimes, holding your hand while you hold the pen. Lover of ink, he is in love with your blood. What he doesn't see when he looks back at you is like the sound of breaking. Glass, sliver of bells, crackling between your teeth. He will consume you, Fernando. Do not look at him. You know, I mean, this this sense of like what's real and what's not. I mean, because we're talking about real and we're talking about mirrors I thought maybe I have a couple more that have have to do with a little bit of this and so this is uh this is before dawn you cannot be real blinking like that your irises not yet frozen imprinted framework of pins and wire weight dug into a fishing net 
now a grid pressed over your bare scalp, not even an eyelash stray left on your flesh, paling in the blue light of dead stars. You might well have been beneath the tide a week, become so like a ripple. And this one is elemental. Women in ancient Rome and in Pompeii, reflections glossy, supernatural, used obsidian for mirrors in the purpled hue of volcanic glass. What they saw as self was shadow, the high ridge of cheekbone, sharp as a knife edge, the bow of lip ripened like a when quicksilver took the place of red fruit, slow earth's core, color glared, no more luminous throat, a sinister threat of smile, cold mimicry, a face instead, ordinary as mine the birds repeating. So those are those are from heliophobia and they have a lot to do with looking and what we look at and how we recognize ourselves. And so they kind of speak to our conversation. So I guess I wanted to to read some of those. And then I have a couple from my project that came out just just last year as well, earlier in the year. So I had Beside the Moazin's Call and Beyond the Harem's Veil that we were talking about earlier. It's kind of a long title. Maybe I, I don't know. <laughs> I kind of like long titles these days. But so the Moazin, I think a lot of people don't know what, what that is, but it he's like the guy that, that sings out the call, call to prayer in the Islamic tradition. And so Azan is what you call the call to prayer, and the Muazin is the guy who like who does that, who like who sings that outwards. I was interested in this notion of how people maybe see Muslim Americans and you know in, in the world right now that is a, a difficult topic. Uh, so some of the poems that I included in this book, in fact, the whole chapbook is really kind of about and around issues that have to do with with you know the ordinary lives of of Muslim Americans. So I'll read two poems from that. And they also speak a little bit to the automaton that we, that we were addressing earlier. A little bit of background. If you don't know the book of ingenious devices, that's like you, Neil, you know it. But, uh, but you know, for people who don't know it, I think that's definitely worth looking up because it's very interesting. It's an illustrated work on devices, like uh, devices that have like mechanical parts. And uh, you'll find some, uh, some automata in there too. And I, I, was reading a lot about these when I was working on on Galatea, but then I came back to it with in this other conversation. I never really wrote about these automata or these images, and so these two poems uh, that I want to read, maybe they're inspired by or they come from my decoding of images that I've seen from that that book of ingenious devices in particular. And the two uh, the two people who wrote the book were or the three people who wrote the book I'm sorry I think there were three of them they were brothers and their name was their name was Musa like that was their their home and they uh were part of an organization or like a lodge or group that that took as its name the house of wisdom and so you'll you'll hear that referred to throughout this and then so these are both descriptions of uh devices that you can actually find there they're obviously you know kind of refracted through my my sort of sensibility but these are images that you can find like there are fountains there are um singing musical contraptions uh and some other really beautiful things so i'm i'll read those two poems there it's a it's two out of a longer series it's like it's one long poem and it's got like uh several sections and so i'll read two of those sections palimpsest of an entry for the book of ingenious devices 
The brothers of the House of Wisdom built a book, a thousand and one less one by ten, and the brothers of the House of Wisdom built devices and a page on a page on how to use them. The brothers of the House of Wisdom built a hero or a philo or a system of control. The brothers of the House of Wisdom built a pneumatic valve. What use would you have for a pneumatic valve or engineering among the 8th century sands? But in the work of the hand of the once Vitruvian man is the power that doesn't need reason to reason. The brothers of the House of Wisdom built a trick of the mind, a vessel moving water out of time, a fountain in a flower of tin, feathers, a shapeshifter in the wind, a musical box with a flute and a claw, a gas mask for covering the face. The brothers of the House of Wisdom built a trick of the mind and wonder. What wonder can we find in a sand and cattle land beside frontiers and borders where the house carries a memory of the ranks of color, unmoored, unmoved with the movement of time? The brothers of the House of Wisdom built what I will call nothing but a book of tricks, and you are not the color of wisdom I will recognize. The brothers of the House of Wisdom built a book by which you made a gauge to give us time and wonder, but I will not read by it or give your light any other word than dark to be given back to darkness. The brothers of the House of Wisdom built a book. In the book, devices to dazzle the movement of wit and time, water, shadow, fire. That was section two, and this is section three, and so it's another palimpsest. Palimpsest of technical drawings from the book of knowledge of ingenious mechanical devices, peacock flame, monk child, song of fountain and light. The sacred letter is a song of any scribe, sound and sense bound in the simplest strokes, graceful turn and punishing constraint, but the sense and the sensing bound at once. The sacred stone is a shape, a displacing clay, a geometry of material that shadows the light. The shifting of the numbers of the stone and tree, the rhizomes offering to algae and ant, and the slivers of those shapes make up the faces of edifices of the sacred, where may be seated the songs of the pious bearing the lettered lingering of the mewling, guttering wish of the pit of navel and the curve of the nape of the neck curling skyward. The shape, repeating, is a structure. The structure of bone is a cathedral, a temple a mosque, a library, a rosary on which to count the many sins of the sacred and the unsacred and the scared are simpler to reach by song. And if the song is kept in keyed tin, in fountains opening at the mooring of the peacock's ominous throaty warble, a portent to slip open a pocket or a portal to the rivers of the garden, like the rivers extinguishing a small flame borne by a tin monk bearing in his lap a child lifting a cup to the shore of tin bridged on the other side. The letters, letters the world, the world letters the sound, the sound letters the name, and the name is a song of being in light. And what of the words curling like henna on the body, ink lovely tattoos on the body's walls, and the body is the building of a sacred space now lettered with words that unsing the spoilt song of a screen-built homeland or the ruins of a hand-bricked wall, walling the gardener from gardens of orange and olive grove from the rivers and sunny land? Where does the land dip open and fold? Where is the tongue's taste for petal and leaf? 
Where will the mountain's path lead? And to write those many names with light, hues of neon and electricity, ephemeral as breath, is to say that the word is a world of words, worldly and world-weary, and wearying the sacred songs, the stroke of the scribe there beyond the world of the unread, velvet and ripe for the asking and the eating and the taking of this breath. A voice commands you to look at the letters of your dreams and read. Wow, there's so much there. There's a part of me that's just craving to read the text in front of me. <laughs> it, it's been an absolute delight to, to be able to, to speak with you. Thank you for taking the time to share with us uh, your obsessions with uh, automata, <laughs> with, with mummies, with mirrors, with, with script, and with reflection. Oh, and divination. <laughs> full plate for us. Thank you so much, Neil. Always good to chat with you. That was author, poet, fiction writer, and scholar Saba Razvi. You can find more about her and her work on www.sabarazvi.com. That's spelled S-A-B-A-R-A-Z-V-I.com. You've been listening to The Lit Fantastic. To listen to all our previous episodes, check us out on iTunes and SoundCloud, or visit our website, www.thelitfantastic.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Neil Aiken. <laughs>